morning in worship. What a beautiful morning it is. Cool. Uh, we had a little bit of a a uh, situation this morning when we came in, and we just getting started at rehearsing at 7 o'clock, and all the power went out. So we started thinking, well, okay, we could do this without sound system, you know. So we, we practiced all the way through it, and uh, we thought, okay, this is it. It's, it's going to be not going to work, and Dr. Cox walked through the, the door, and all the lights came on. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, what does that mean? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. His mercy is more. That's a, that's my transition into the new the song. His mercy is more. Let's stand this thing and let's let's uh, yeah, let's stand up. Praise the
you can be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. We're glad to have you here to worship with us this morning. If you're joining us online, we say thank you to, uh, for joining us and welcome. Glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, you'll see this little white guest registration card there in the pew rack in front of you. And we just want to be able to have the chance to connect with you and get to know you. And so if you'll take just a moment to fill that out at the conclusion of the service, as you're exiting the doors, you can head up to your left uh, and you'll see a welcome desk up there. And our lead pastor, Dr. Cox, will be there this morning. And he's got a small gift for all first-time guests. And he'd love to have the chance to meet you. You can begin thinking now about maybe possibly staying for a connection group. And so that's a great way to be able to connect with a smaller group of people uh, within the church. And so they can help you there also at that same welcome desk uh, to stay uh, this next hour for connection groups and, and continue uh, to worship. And so this morning... Uh, we're just going to continue uh, to praise God. The psalm says to praise God with all of our hearts and so with our voices, with our minds. And so we just want to um, just sing out and praise Him this morning and be challenged and encouraged by the Word of God. Todd, let's continue worship. Amen. Will you stand with us and let's sing together uh, who you are to me is what it says. Some people think you're distant, just some words on a page. That you're nothing more than fables handed down along the way. But I've seen you part the waters when no one else could pull me from the deep. That's who you are to me. Some people think you just live in cathedrals made of stone. But I know you live inside my heart. I know that it's your home.
mercy. His mercy is more. That's what we're singing about today. Just sing along with us. Sarah is going to lead us. I will kneel in the dust at the foot of the cross when mercy paid for me. Where the wrath I deserve, it is gone, it is past. Your blood has hidden me.
come before you this morning thanking you for your mercy. Oh, Lord, may we never lose that wonder. Lord, I know sometimes if you've, we've been Christians for many, many years, it's, it's, it's easy to, to lose our first love, to, to the excitement of our first love, the wonder of, of knowing your mercy, of realizing your grace and how you take care of us, Lord. But our prayer today is that we may never, ever lose that wonder, the wonder of who you are, the wonder of your mercy. Oh, Lord, we come before you this morning with open hearts, ready to receive whatever you want to speak to us today. Help us to hear from you today. And, Lord, I pray that as we experience you, Lord, as we experience God today, that it will change us to the core of our being. And we'll leave here different than we came because we have experienced you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to see you today. I have a question for you to ponder as we begin today. Should Christians be pessimists or optimists? Should we be people who see the glass half empty or see the glass half full? Well, I'm going to share with you my answer to that question right off the bat. I believe that Christians should be pessimistic about the world and its systems and optimistic about the kingdom of God. And because the world is temporary and the kingdom of God is eternal, I believe our optimism ought to trump our pessimism. I believe Christians ought to be optimistic people because of the kingdom of God. And I really feel like that our optimism has taken some uh, blows in recent years. I think the COVID pandemic has sort of left some people with a, a defeated sense and a discouraged sense about life. Uh, I think that the current climate in our nation causes some Christians to be glass half empty kind of people. The moral condition of our nation is not good. Politics, we are so divided and so angry. There's, so, there's, uh, there's tension in our, our nation. And because of all of these things, I think that, that some of us have tended to become pessimistic. And it may be in your personal life that there have been circumstances that contribute to that as well. That you've been through some tough times and... Uh, the, the sheen has worn off your optimism because of just the stuff of life that, that you're going through. So today, I want us to look at the last chapter in the book of Amos, and I believe that it can help us recover a biblical sense of kingdom optimism. I'm preaching a series of sermons through the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet of Amos. And this is the final sermon in that series. We're going to look at the last chapter of Amos today. Thank you for sticking with me through the book of Amos and being here and being a part of this. I hope you've learned something about the book of Amos. And the book of Amos can seem a little bit pessimistic. The theme that I've shared with you, the lion has roared, who will not fear? It's about the judgment of God, like he's a ravenous lion about to destroy the nation of Israel. It's about the judgment of God. And many of the sermons and visions of Amos that we've looked at are, are sort of dark. 
They're dismal. They're about the end, about coming judgment. And the last chapter in the book of Amos is more so than any other. Because it says, in this chapter we're going to look at today, that God will completely annihilate Israel. But, in the darkness of this chapter, like a ray of sunshine breaking through dark clouds, is a word of hope at the end of this chapter. And that's where I want you to see the Christian reason for optimism. So, let's go through Amos chapter 9. Uh, Amos chapter 9 begins with the fifth vision. Remember, the first six chapters of Amos are his sermons. The last three chapters are the visions. And this is the fifth and final vision that God gave to Amos. It begins in Amos 9.1, I saw. So, there's some differences between this vision and the four before. Each of them had a different uh, introductory formula than this. On all the other four, it says, the Lord showed me. And now it says, I saw. Don't know if that's significant, but it may say, this is it. This is the last one. And on the, all the others, there's some dialogue between God and Amos after the vision. What do you see, Amos? I see a plumb line. On the others, it is uh, uh, God showing Amos a symbolic uh, picture, like a basket of summer fruit or a plumb line, or something that's coming, like a locust plague, or a fire. But here it is simply this, I saw the Lord. So in this vision, Amos is allowed to see a representation of God. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake, and bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I'll kill with the sword. No one will escape, none no one will get away, none will escape. So in this vision, God speaks to angels or to the earth or whatever to destroy the temples of Bethel, those places of worship that were not making a difference in their life. They were empty places of worship, which is not where God intended for them to worship anyway. He put his name in Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to bring them down, and I'll bring them down on the heads of the people, saying, I'm going to destroy this nation, and no one will get away, not one will escape. I told you it started out pessimistic, right? Verse 2 says, in these verses that follow, that God's judgment is inescapable. No matter where you go, you're not going to get away from God's judgment. Here's some possible hiding places from God's judgment. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will hide them. You can't get in a cave deep enough to escape God. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I'll bring them down. You can't go high enough to escape God. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, there will I hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. If you're with us in the summer outdoor services, I talked about how God controls the animals of the world. They do his bidding. We see it again here in Amos. He said, I can command the sea serpents, the monsters of the deep, to execute my judgment upon you. You could ask Jonah about that if you need a reference for that truth of that verse. And he says in verse 4, Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I'll keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. God watches over us, the Bible says, for good, but God can also keep his eye on us for judgment. And then in verse 5 is the last of one of these sections that shows the greatness and awe of God that we've been trying to capture. The line is roared, who will not fear? The majesty, the reverence of God. Here we see his greatness one more time in one of these poems or hymns that is here in this verse. The Lord, the Lord Almighty. And by the way, here's the name of God we've been talking about. 
And here is one of those places where I've told you before there are two words in uh, the Hebrew that are translated Lord in your Bible. Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the name of God, meaning the I Am, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And then there's the title Adonai, which means boss, master, Lord. Here they are back to back if you want to see them. Here's one of the places where you can see them. Capital, you see the second one is in all caps. That's the way in your Bible it's always going to depict the divine name of Yahweh or Jehovah. And then you see the one before it. You see how it's a little different? The O, R, and D are not capitalized. That's how the Bible is always going to translate the, the name Adonai, which means master. Well, here's one of the rare places where they're back-to-back so you can see them well. The Lord, the boss of all, the commander of all the world, Yahweh Almighty, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, or of hosts, the Lord Almighty who commands the angel armies. That's who He is. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He touches the earth and it melts. You want to know the power of God? He can touch the earth and it melts. And all who live in it mourn, and the whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. We talked last week about that phrase. It was in chapter 8. The Nile overflows every year, floods, and then goes back down. He says, I can make the whole of earth When I execute judgment, I can make all of the land quake like the Nile. He builds, verse 6, his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. God controls all of creation and he can speak and call the waters. He is the great almighty God. And so in verse 7, are you Israelites... Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Captor, and the Arameans from Kerr? They had a view that because they were the chosen people, they were exempt from judgment. And God is saying to them here, I can judge you as much as I judged Arameans or Philistines or others. Surely, verse 8, the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. The northern kingdom of Israel is going to be destroyed, obliterated, annihilated. That's pretty dark. But then in verse 8 he says, I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. What? Where'd that come from? Wait a minute. In the midst of the darkness, what's that doing here? There's a note of God's mercy. He says, but not entirely. Whoa, there's a difference. And there is the first hint of the optimism, the mercy, the unexpected, unexplained goodness of God. The, chap, the book of Amos could have ended halfway through verse 8. It could have ended and said, I'll totally destroy Israel. And God would have been just, fair. No one could have complained about him. That's what they deserved. That is what uh, God had been saying all along. And if the book ended there, it would all make sense and nothing more would need to be said. But God shows his unexpected, unexplained goodness, his mercy that we've been singing about this morning. Yet, even though they deserve total destruction, I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 continue with this note of total destruction. For I'll give the command, I'll shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. And so they took a a screen bottom thing and they would shake and the the grain would fall to the ground. The pebbles would stay on top. You could throw them off. He said, I'll shake and separate them and I will judge the wicked. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. 
And then in verse 11, the tone changes. And what was hinted at in the last part of verse 8 is, comes to flower in these final verses. And here is the cause for Christian optimism. Here are four promises that end the book of Amos. And these four hope-filled promises are the reason that you can live with hope no matter what's going on in your life. They're the reason that no matter how bad our world gets, Christians can be optimistic, hope-filled, glass-half-full kind of people. I want to share these four promises with you. The first two of them are fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. All four of them are fulfilled in Jesus. All of God's promises have come through in Jesus. But the first two of them are fulfilled in his first coming. Number one, God said in verse 11, I'll restore David's fallen tent. Let's look at verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter or tent, your translation may say, or booth our hut, same word as the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles. I'll restore David's fallen shelter, hut, booth, tent, and I'll repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and I'll rebuild it as it used to be. What does that mean? Well, when God chose the people of Israel to be his own, right after the Tower of Babel, he chose Abraham out of that worst time in the whole world when all the nations were scattered and our languages were confused. God, in another moment of hope, said, I'm going to choose a nation. I'm going to build it through Abraham, and I'm going to bless the world through Abraham. And through the Jewish people, there came a king named David. First there was King Saul. He was rejected. And then David. And God said to David, I am going to have one of your descendants rule forever. It doesn't mean there'll be an unbroken line of Davidic kings, he said, because if your son's your descendants disobey me, I'll cut the line off. But there will be a king descended from you who will rule forever. Just as God said, that came true. David's descendants rule for a while and then they turn for God. And in 586 B.C., God destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, just like he's going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And the, the line of David was cut off. Or in other words, the house of David collapsed. The tent of David fell you ever been camping and your tent falls? The tent fell. The house crumbled. The line of David was cut off. From 586 B.C., for almost 600 years, there was no Davidic king. And then, let me read to you the first verse of the New Testament in Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior, anointed one, King. He descends from David in Jesus. I will restore David's fallen shelter has been fulfilled. Jesus, the son of David, is the Messiah King. And so God has given us a Savior, a King, and this King Jesus rules all of creation and he rules in the hearts of those who will confess him as Lord of their lives. He's setting up his kingdom, and one day he's going to rule the nations. You can bank on it. You can book it. It doesn't matter what happens in politics or history. Jesus is king, and one day he'll rule the whole world. That's why I'm an optimist, and you should be too.
Let's go to the second promise fulfilled in connection with the first coming of Jesus. That's in verse 12. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. God said the nations will bear my name. Now, when does that come true? After Jesus ascended to heaven, told his disciples to go into all the world, and some went to Antioch and began to share the good news there, and a church was established at Antioch, and something happened that had not happened before. Non-Jews began to believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and began to put their faith in him. Up until that time, it had been either Jews or God-fearers, but now just pure old Gentiles, non-Jews like me and probably like you, began to believe. And this was new. Doesn't seem new to us, but it was radical. And some people came from Jerusalem and said, uh, now to become a Christian, you're going to have to become a Jew. Then you can be saved. You're going to have to be circumcised if you're male. If you're not a male, you've got to keep all the law of Moses. You're going to have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. This was a big deal. They had a conference in Jerusalem. So the Christians from Antioch came, all the leaders were there. In Acts 15, it tells about this Jerusalem conference. This is one of the biggest deals in the Bible, in the history of Christianity. I would love to be a fly on the wall at that meeting. Every writer of the New Testament was in that room except Luke. He would come later and maybe Jude, the brother of Jesus. I think he was there, but it doesn't specifically say. All of the apostles were there. James had already been killed. Acts chapter 12, but the other 11 apostles were there. Paul and Barnabas was there. Saul, uh, uh, Silas was there. John Mark was there. James, the brother of Jesus, who had become the lead pastor at the church in Jerusalem, was there. All the Christian leaders were in that room in Acts 15. And so these Judaizers got up and made their case. you got to become a Jew in order to become a Gentile. And then Peter stood up. And Peter told about what happened with Cornelius. And he said, hey, God sent me to this God-fearer. And, and he put his faith in Jesus, and they spoke in tongues, and I baptized them. And then Paul and Barnabas got up. And Paul and Barnabas said, we've been on our first missionary tour, and we've been to, 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 uh, to Cyprus, and, and we've been to all these places in modern-day Turkey, and Gentiles in every city are believing in Jesus and are turning to him. And then finally James got up. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the elder, the leader, and he gets up and what does James say? Let me read it to you in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 14. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I'll rebuild and I'll restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, these things known from long ago. What did James do? He quoted the last part of Amos. He quoted Amos 9. He said, this is the fulfillment of that. When God had said, I'll rebuild 
David's fallen tent, and that's Jesus. And then he said, and all the nations will bear my name. That's what's happening right now. The nations are coming to Jesus. This is God's plan. And so he said in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And the last part of this second promise of Amos was fulfilled when the church began to welcome people from all nations. And now today God is building his church and the church welcomes people from all nations. Jesus is the Savior not just of the Jews but of Africans and Arabs and Indians and Chinese and Anglos and every other nationality. He's the Savior of the world and God is building his church and the church will exist until he comes. It will not be overcome by the forces of evil. Jesus said on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it and it was fulfilled here when the church became a worldwide mission that's why I'm an optimist you should be too let's look at the last two promises the first two promises are fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus he said I'll restore David's tent Jesus came he said I'll open this to all nations and the church became a people of Jews and Gentiles and then these last two promises will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. The third one is, in verse 13, God said the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. Verse 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. And new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. What does that mean? Well, the reaper is the one who gathers the harvest. In our, in our year, not necessarily in theirs, but in our years, that would be this time of year. Right now, you know, they're, they're combining corn and beginning soybeans and things right now in the fall. So they're, they're harvesting, and they'll get done with their harvest. But what if the harvest was so great? What if there was so much food and such abundance that it took them all the way to next spring and they're still not full? Their barns are full. We can't get it all in. And people say, it's time for us to plow and plant. We can't plant. We had not got it harvested yet. And the plowman overtakes the reaper. That is a way of saying to these agricultural people, it's going to be great. There's going to be plenty. There's going to be an abundance. And then he goes on to say, and new wine will drip from the mountains they grow grapes they prune grapes they harvest grapes they press grapes they put grapes into jars it's just gonna drip and run down and flow from the hills he said what's happening here the curse on creation will be broken we live in a world now that is not that abundant there are thorns and thistles and Japanese beetles and blight and mildew and all kind of stuff and it thwarts that and there is cancer in our bodies, in our cells, and there's all kind of deformity and disease and arthritis and pain. And, and he's saying to you in this verse that just as you can be sure David's fallen tent has been restored and the church has been established worldwide, that the curse on creation from the time of Adam and Eve will be broken. And there will be a time when there will be such abundance and there will be no frustration, and no heartache, and no tears, and no pain, and no death. And the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. 
the curse on this earth will be broken and everything will be made right. And that is why I'm an optimist and you should be too. Let's look at the fourth promise. The fourth promise is God said, I'll plant Israel in their own land never again to be uprooted. Verse 14 and 15, I'll bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant Israel in their own land never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now that was fulfilled perhaps partially in the return from the exile 70 years after it started in 586. They came back to the land, but that's not the ultimate and the final fulfillment of this verse because they were not planted there never to be up, uprooted. The Jews throughout their history have been a people in search of a homeland much of their history. This is still in connection with the second coming of Jesus as the verse before was when he says, I'll replant them in their land never to be uprooted. And it speaks to us because the church is of Jew and Gentile, and we too have never really found our home, have we? And we've never really found where we fit, and it's never been exactly right. And so God is saying, we will be home forever. And this is fulfilled maybe partially in the millennium, if you believe in a millennium, but finally in this They'll never be uprooted, fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth where God is going to put Jew and Gentile together in a place, a home where he's prepared for us, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth where we'll be forever in a land that is eaten, restored, and we will be there forever. That's why I'm an optimist, and you should be too. Four things that you can bank on when our world seems like it's in a mess, and when your life seems that way, Jesus is king, and nothing is going to change that. And he's going to rule forever. The church has been established by him, and it will endure until the end. It will not be overcome by evil. And the curse will be broken, and all the frustration of your life related to creation and health and wellness will be overcome. And we will be home forever. Life can be hard. Evil is real. But Christians must be the ultimate optimists. Because we are people of a kingdom that has been established by the Messiah. And that will never end. And so in spite of heartaches and sorrows that are very real, we do not deny them. But we live through them with a hope and a sense of optimism. That's how God ends the book of Amos. The lion has roared, who will not fear? Let's pray together. Oh God, I want to pray if there's anybody here today who is discouraged, defeated by their own personal situations or the condition of our world. And I pray, Lord, that they will find real hope, real encouragement, real sense of optimism in Jesus. And if there's a person here who has not received Him as Savior, I pray that today they might say, I see that this has been God's plan. I repent of my sin and put my faith in Jesus as King of my life, and I'll become part of His kingdom and the territory He rules. And Lord, I pray that we people will unite and invest in Your church 
the only institution that will never be overcome or dissolved. And so, Lord, maybe there's somebody who needs to say, I need to invest in the church and the kingdom. Maybe there's a person dealing with some kind of disease or frustration related to our fallen world. Oh, God, encourage them with the hope that that curse will be broken. There's those of us who have never fit anywhere. May we know that one day we'll be home forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And today you want to confess Jesus as King and Lord of your life and be baptized and follow Him, I invite you to walk forward as we sing. The Decision Council will be here to pray with you or answer any questions. We'll rejoice with you if you want to join our church or if you just want to pray about something in your life. Somebody will be glad to pray with you. If God's in any way speaking to you, this is your opportunity to respond to Him. All throughout my history Your faithfulness has walked beside me The winter storms made way for spring And every season from where I'm standing I see the evidence
be seated. Amen. Todd, I'm glad the power came on this morning. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You guys did a great job leading us in worship, and uh, we want to just guide your attention to our worship God for just a moment. And you'll see there at the top that our church picnic has been rescheduled for today. And we're just going to try again next year. So that event has been canceled. So if you prepared deviled eggs and, uh, and you don't know what to do with them, uh, write this down, 188 Bluegrass Drive, Manchester, Tennessee. <laughs> And you just put them at the front door, ring the bell, I'll, I'll take care of it. So I'm here for you. Um, along with that, if you look at our worship guide, oh, um, student discipleship is still going on. So you could also bring it to that, I guess, Tim. That's true. So 530 here, parents of students, students, make note of that and bring your deviled eggs either to my house or the gym. But you look at the rest of this, you can see great information. And uh, as we've worshipped through song, we've worshipped through the word, we also give the opportunity to worship through giving. On the back wall you see two drop boxes, you can drop your tithes and offerings off there. Uh, and if you have a guest card, please go by the Welcome Center as you turn left. We have a small gift for you coming and being a part of our worship this morning. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for the promises that we've heard, God. Um, we thank you for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of these promises. And so, Father, this week, as we step into our mission field, may we hold out the promises of Jesus and help us where we live, work, and play to make disciples. We ask all of this in your good name. Amen.